This episode of Industry Focus is brought to you by Harry's. For guys who want a great shave experience for a fraction of what you're paying now, go to harrys.com. Get $5 off your first purchase by entering the code FOOL when you check out. Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market each day. It is Tuesday, July 19th, and I'm your host, Vincent Shen. Joining me today via Skype to talk consumer and retail is Fool.com contributor, Asit Sharma. Asit, very happy to have you back. How are you doing? Hey, it's good to be back, Vince. I'm doing great. Thanks for asking. Yeah, no problem. Uh, so getting right into it, uh, on tap for this episode, we have uh, what I like to think of in an industry in transition. So on the one hand, and this has really surprised me how high this number is, I would bet uh, you know, every person listening to this show, probably nearly everyone or most people in the country for that matter, has at one point uh, enjoyed this product. Uh, for 2015, per capita consumption in the U.S. came in at nearly 41 gallons uh, for the year, or over 14 ounces per day. That's every day, 365 days. But on the flip side, those numbers represent uh, the lowest uh, for the industry in terms of consumption since 1985. And they also mark the 11th straight year of sales declines. And uh, for the listeners, if you haven't guessed it already, we're actually talking about soda, uh, and also might call it pop or coke, depending on which region of the country you're from. So uh, ultimately, you know, carbonated soft drinks. If you want to go to the, go with the more technical term, uh, the industry has given us some of the most iconic companies and brands. I think in the business world, uh, multiple generations of really weaving uh, this product into our everyday lives. But you know, some health risks have obviously made soda not quite so popular among many consumers. And uh, some people see that as a real long-term challenge. So today, uh, Asit, I just wanted to talk about the industry, uh, what's been going on there recently, the past few years, um, some of the challenges they face in addition to the health concerns, uh, if you want to just dive right into it. Sure. Well, let's start with the health concerns, because that's driving the rest of the business for both Coke and Pepsi, uh, the main two companies that we'll talk about today. Uh, as you mentioned what caught my eye uh, earlier this year was Beverage Digest uh, had their they do a study every year and they reported that soda volumes, as you mentioned, have declined for 11 straight years. It hit that 30-year low in 2015. Well, many of our listeners hold Coke and Pepsi, and those stocks have done relatively well over the last 10, 11-year time frame. So obviously, both companies have combated. Uh, this trend. How they're doing it, they take different approaches, but uh, really to fast forward into what the issues on the table are for them today, what we're seeing in 2016, the biggest one out there is taxation. And uh, those of you who live in New York remember that Michael Bloomberg tried to uh, have big sodas or, or giant sized servings taxed in New York City. That didn't quite go through, but it started a movement and he's participated, he's funded some groups which have uh, now lobbied for in various municipalities these soda taxes and last month we saw Philadelphia pass a pretty big tax, it's one and a half cents per ounce on regular and diet sodas in June. So what that means is for a 16 ounce Coke which sells, let's say for a dollar fifteen you're seeing a 22% surcharge on that drink. And that's an enormous tax, it's an enormous hurdle for a company to overcome. So one of the things we'll be talking about today is how strategically as this multinational conglomerate, whether you're Coke, who's all beverages, 
or PepsiCo snacks and beverages, how you combat what is potentially a wave of taxation. Um, I'll just mention really quickly, Denver, Colorado, San Francisco are also entertaining ballot measures similar to the one that passed in Philadelphia, and these aren't small cities. And in addition, the entire country of South Africa is now looking at a soda tax, which is a you know, pretty vibrant emerging market for both of these companies. Yeah, uh, I actually was living in New York when um, when Bloomberg tried to pass the 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 uh, you know when he tried to tighten the serving of the the I think it was 16 ounces or more at restaurants, movie theaters, stadiums, and there was quite a bit of uproar over that. And I remember just walking past like a 7-Eleven, they had signs on the sidewalk outside the door, basically mentioning this and how it's like you know we don't need to be a nanny state, so to speak. And that ended up uh, ultimately getting shut down by the courts, I believe. But uh, you mentioned Philadelphia recently had some success with that tax specifically. And also, I wasn't aware of the South Africa uh, developments, the South African developments. But, you know, in Mexico overall, uh, I believe it was back in January or, yeah, I think it was January 2014, they passed a one peso per liter uh, tax, essentially. And that raised prices there approximately 10%. And uh, results seem to have been generally successful or maybe a little bit more mixed. But obviously, this is a trend that's picked up. And the companies, uh, both Pepsi and Coca-Cola, have lobbied quite a bit against regulations like these, obviously hurting their bottom line. Uh, I saw in the Wall Street Journal that the industry overall has spent over $100 million since 2009 battling similar tax proposals in more than two dozen cities, at least within the U.S. So, uh, you know, the steam's picking up and the company is, you know, having to spend quite a bit of money to, to try and fight that trend. That's true. And uh, this is what's uh, maybe a sign of ingenuity in each of these companies is they have this split brain, left brain, right brain. So one side of the brain says, we've got to fight the regulation. Uh, the other side of the brain says, we've got to cope and we've got to find ways which we can still obtain the margins that we need out in the marketplace. And you mentioned Mexico, so Coke and Pepsi had a little bit of uh, lead on that. The actual uh, tax passed, I think, in October of 2013. And then, as you mentioned, Vince, at the beginning of 2014, they had to sell with this tax in place. And what we've seen is that both companies took sort of an immediate hit in Mexico, but they're selling more juices, which uh, are borderline and, and can escape the tax. They are working with their margins in Mexico to see if they can be a little bit more profitable there and absorb some of it. And they're also looking to uh, introduce new labels wherever possible. So they have this template that you'll see in evidence in Philadelphia and other cities. Mexico is sort of the test case. and. It's worked out for the, the groups who were able to lobby the Mexican legislature because consumption of sodas has declined somewhat in Mexico as a result of that tax. But Pepsi and Coke haven't taken so big a hit there. They are um, gradually gaining back the margins and organic sales level that they had. Okay, so, uh, you know. Not not with not just with regulations, but um, you know we had talked about it a little bit a little bit more. But uh, something else they're kind of uh, fighting off is just with a little bit more of their labeling in terms of their ingredients and some of uh, you know on the back of the bottle or back of the can when you turn it. And that's with GMO stuff. That's right. 
Yeah, that's true. So there's a lot of legislation in the works, or potential legislation, I should say, both on the federal and the state level to require labeling. Uh, it's called mandatory GMO labeling, and it will show on any product if you're using genetically modified uh, ingredients. So on one hand, Coke and Pepsi are adamantly against this because corn, corn syrup, obviously is a big part of sodas. So they really want to defeat these on a state level before they reach the federal level. They weren't successful in Vermont, which just uh, passed a law. And Coke has actually said, hey, we're going to have to lower volumes temporarily because of this law, because some of our less profitable stuff, it's almost not worth it for us to go through this long ramp of relabeling. So they're looking through their inventory in Vermont and seeing what can be done there. But what's really interesting to me is uh, if you look at what they've spent, uh, Coke and Pepsi last year were the third and sixth biggest lobbying spenders to defeat uh, this GMO labeling on the, the state and federal level. They spent $14 million, that was um, Coke, and about $9 million, that, that was Pepsi. So they are leaders in trying to repel this legislation, but at the same time, uh, again, left brain, right brain. Pepsi last year introduced uh, snack machines called Hello Goodness, which they, they vend out naked juice, uh, they vend out hummus. So the marketing push is very much, we're going to offer healthy alternatives. And this year they're coming out with organic Gatorade, and they're also coming out with a line which will emphasize that Tropicana orange juice uh, doesn't have any genetically modified ingredients. Okay, so, uh, you know, these are uh, obviously two of the, to the challenges that the company's facing, but I should, you know, I want to remind listeners, you'd mentioned in the beginning of the episode that uh, at least for the two bigger players, Pepsi and Coca-Cola, uh, the fact is their stock has been performing quite well. Um, you know, I was looking at their, their five-year price charts before we started recording, and, uh, you know, they've both been pretty consistent uh, with their gains on a, you know, with a nice... Uh, up into the right that you like to see in a chart like that, um, but overall, uh, they are also definitely uh, kind of changing their approach to things. You mentioned some of the things like the hello goodness, but we'll have a lot more to discuss uh, coming up here in terms of you know how the companies are approaching uh, their products and their strategy in the future. Uh, but before we move on, uh, this episode of Industry Focus is brought to you by Harry's. As a DC resident, I see a lot of guys sporting facial hair in the city. And I actually remember seeing the district is ranked as one of the most beard-friendly cities in the country. But frankly, the clean-shaven look has been an absolute necessity with the hot and humid days we've had this summer. And Harry's has made my morning shave more enjoyable than ever. The high-quality German blades they use in their razors feel amazing. And their products are factory direct, so you get a premium shave experience at half the price of leading brands. Over one million guys have already made the switch with Harry's products shipped right to their door. And now, Harry's is offering a starter set called the Truman, which is great for new customers, and it includes a razor handle, shave cream, and three of their German-engineered razors for just $15. And for industry-focused listeners, Harry's will give you $5 off your first purchase with the promo code FOOL. Go to harrys.com, that's H-A-R-R-Y-S.com, and enter the code FOOL at checkout. So, uh, touching on the future of uh, Coke and Pepsi, after we've touched on some of the headwinds previously, Asset, uh, what are these companies doing? Uh, you know, with really diving into it in terms of setting themselves up for future success. Coke is a thirsty company right now. They're thirsty for brands which are not carbonated sweetened beverages. 
which are what they call stills, that is non-sparkling beverages. So they're on the hunt to acquire uh, minority interest or outright purchases of brands which are perceived as healthier by the consumer, which have potential to grow. Uh, some names which our listeners will be familiar with are Fairlife Milk, which has recently become available in grocery stores. Uh, Suja LLC is another company they've taken an interest in. Aloe Glow Water. So you can see these are very non-traditional brands for a company like Coke. But this is something that Coke has really um, been thinking through for the past several years. Investors perceive Coke as a cash cow. One of the strongest things about Coke is the fact it's got this great predictable cash flow for decades and decades that's been on the back of carbonated beverages. So what they're doing is they're transferring that predictability by growing smaller brands. Um, still today, about 75% of Coke's global unit volume is sparkling beverages. But this statistic counterbalances that. There's this um, idea that we have to move into stills uh, has taken hold of Coke's management team and now 14 out of 20 of Coke's billion dollar brands are actually still beverages. Um, the other thing that Coke's doing has been to launch a multi-year productivity initiative. So they're seeking to find three billion dollars in annual cost savings by the year 2019. Why are they doing this? They know they can't grow their organic revenues fast enough as soda volumes are falling. So they're sending a message to investors that while we solve this puzzle, we're going to deliver the earnings to you. And I think that's really helped prop the stock up over the last 12 to 18 months. Yeah, Third, if you don't yeah, mind me yeah. if I jump in really quick, Asset, too. Absolutely. Uh, you know, what you mentioned uh, in terms of that stability. Uh, is the fact that you know for a lot of investors they love the fact that you know Coke pays a pretty healthy dividend. I think it's around yields around three percent now, a little over three percent last I checked, and um, you know hopefully we can get into this later. But with some of those acquisitions that you mentioned, you know remind me if I don't touch on this. Uh, but you know they have a whole you know business unit essentially dedicated to those. But I'll let you keep going that we can jump back into that. Yeah, absolutely. We'll we'll circle back to that in a second. Uh, Another thing that Coke is doing to reinforce this uh, idea that um, we can deliver earnings is packaging innovation. So uh, a few years ago, executives decided that if we can't beat them, join them. <laughs> In other words, if we can't convince people to drink liter bottles of Coca-Cola, let's make the packages smaller. And I think it's been a huge success for them. Our listeners are familiar with seeing the seven and a half ounce mini cans. Uh, on the shelves and, and for many folks that's a great way to enjoy Coca-Cola. It's a reduced guilt uh, type of uh, moment that you can take off in little bits, buy a six pack and just pull it off. It's relatively guilt free and for Coke it's a win. It's a premium uh, packaging innovation. What that means is they've got a higher margin on those smaller cans than they do on the bigger sodas. So everybody wins in that sense. And the last thing I wanted to talk about in terms of Coke's strategy for dealing with this gradual decline of sodas is they want to become a smaller and more profitable company. And this will take many of our listeners by surprise because it's the goal of every multinational conglomerate to become bigger, right? Well, Coke is actually going the other way. They're going from a 120,000 employee company to roughly 40,000 employees and they're going to go from a $43 billion company perhaps all the way down to a $28 billion company. 
and this is going to be a sea change. It will be a bigger story next year and in 2018. And essentially what Coke is doing is they're selling off all of their bottling operations to their global bottling partners. They're going to become a more nimble company, a company which markets more than it manufactures. They'll hold on to their concentrates business and in becoming smaller, again, they'll have the ability to grow more quickly again. I think that's a brilliant stroke on the part of management. It shows a lot of long-term thinking on, on their part, part and I think that this will be a success. Not many people are talking about it today, but we'll see as those financials change over the next several quarters. You'll see profits go up, but revenues actually decline as it leaves off the uh, bottling revenue that it has right now. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, they actually have a slide in their investor presentation from a consumer conference, uh, which was just last month, actually, uh, touching on how you know uh, adjusted for after they do all this refranchising of the bottling operations, which was a huge focus, I might add, of that presentation. Um, you know, the revenues falling from 44 to about 28 billion dollars, but you know, you mentioned profitability, gross margins potentially going up seven percentage points from. 61 to 68 percent forecasted operating margins, even bigger jump, going from 23 to 34 percent. So it does sound crazy sometimes for you know this a leading company like this to say, "Hey, we want to be smaller," but obviously there is a lot of incentive to do that uh, on their bottom line. Sure, and let's circle back really quickly to how they're acquiring those smaller companies. Uh, Coke has its own venture capital arm. It's called Venturing and Emerging Brands. And this company seeks out really tiny labels, uh, mom and pop operations that have innovative products. And uh, for Coke, once a product hits about $10 million and, and $20 million in revenue, it starts to become interested. If it sees that a brand can grow maybe up to $50 million in a year or $70 million or $100 million, then it really takes interest. Because for Coke, the holy grail is to find a brand which they can just run through that enormous worldwide distribution system and if anybody can scale a brand up literally overnight from 50 million to the hundreds of millions or make it a billion dollar product it's Coke. So this group, VEB for short, uh, is basically an investor and they're the company that takes minority interests. If you're familiar with Honest Tea, uh, that was a VEB uh, venture and it's now wholly owned by Coke. But again, another way that the company is strategically addressing how to d diversify its overall portfolio and lean more towards these still beverages which have a sustainable, natural, uh, healthier bent to them that consumers are clamoring for. Yep, I'm gl really glad you brought up Honest Tea as well because you know I feel like uh, you know I tried it maybe once a few years ago, but then uh, once they had. Uh, the the investment from Coca Cola, they got the, the the extra leverage with distribution and things along those lines. You know, I see them everywhere now in all the convenience stores, anywhere. A lot of different, uh, for example, restaurants too. Like that is something on the menu that's available. And some other ones uh, that may or uh, that may not have been specifically under their VEB unit, but Zico Coconut Water, for example, is another one I remember really took off. Obviously, with the the partnership that they had, and they've also been using. Uh, some of their acquisitions just to get access to to other markets outside the U.S. where you know the the sugary drinks or the sodas aren't uh, still are doing okay or they're still seeing some decent volume growth. But you know enough about Coca Cola going to uh, the number two here in the industry, which is you know half snack business, half drink business, but obviously drinks business still very significant. PepsiCo, what do you think? 
Sure. PepsiCo is doing a great job right now transitioning as well. Uh, they're a $63 billion company. They have the snacks business, so they're actually larger than Coke. Uh, some of the things that they're drawing, the, the lessons are from Coke's playbook in that they are also looking for productivity savings. Uh, they're shooting for a billion dollars this year in cost savings alone. It looks like they'll hit that. Um, they're using higher marketing spends to prop up those declining soda volumes. And of course, it's a beverage and a snack company. It's got that diversification. Frito-Lay North America itself, which is a division of PepsiCo, is a $14.8 billion business. It's a $15 billion company on its own. And that's provided some support against the soft drink decline. And Pepsi also employs a strategy of relentless innovation. On their last conference call, Indra Nui, their CEO, mentioned that about 9% of revenue now, that's $5 billion, comes from new products. Uh, and I'll, I'll give you an example of this innovation. So the company is coming out with a new type of Mountain Dew called Mountain Dew Black Label. And it's sort of a craft version of Mountain Dew. If you can imagine such a thing, uh, it features real sugar and herbal bitters in its composition. And they're marketing this to a younger crowd Millennials, obviously, and the CEO pointed out, Indranuya pointed out, that this is when Mountain Dew customers want to have their drink with a touch of class. So they're really innovative in the sense that they know where the millennial customer is going. And for them, it's less about these bolt-on acquisitions that, that Coke does and more about developing new varieties in-house. Okay. Uh, Mountain Dew Black Label. I have to say, I... I... I'm really surprised uh, to hear someone put the words Mountain Dew and class in the same sentence, but I haven't <laughs> seen that yet. And I'm actually really curious to try it. Like, you know, some of the listeners might laugh at me, but I still actually enjoy a Mountain Dew every now and then. It's probably one of the few sodas I actually still seek out uh, on occasion. And um, this is actually has me really intrigued now. <laughs> sure. Well, I tell you what, maybe they can entice you with another strategy they're using, which is the cross marketing of their products. Uh, Pepsi is, they're doing a great job of in convenience stores, which is a growing channel uh, for soft drinks and snack beverages, of putting the displays together. So you'll see Doritos cross-marketed with the Mountain Dews. So Vince, you can grab some Doritos while you're at it, once you uh, pick up your black label Mountain Dew. Uh, this is a strategy that actually was, they had a, an actress investor, Nelson Peltz, who didn't like this idea at all several years ago and he actually wanted to split the company up. He wanted PepsiCo to sell its snack business, its Frito-Lay um, and also Quaker Oats to Mondelez which is the company which used to be Kraft in this merry-go-round of um, brand names uh, but Indra Nui and her executive team resisted. This was about three years ago in 2013. Uh, what they did was they insisted that if we market our products together, snacks and beverages, beverages will be stronger. And in resisting, they actually did grow revenues at a faster rate. Nelson Pelt said, hey, if you don't break this company up, you're always going to be a number two to Coke. You'll always have a lower growth rate and you'll always be valued by investors uh, as not, not quite as much as Coke is. Lo and behold, three years later, by sticking with this better together, that is snacks and beverages strategy, PepsiCo now commands a premium valuation multiple to Coke. It's just, just a bit over Coke's, but they've caught up, and that's really interesting to me to see. 
Yeah, I, I wasn't uh, aware of the some of the history with the active investor. So when you brought that up yesterday, I thought that was just um, a really interesting background and how, uh, in this case, uh, I think overall engineers generally has a very uh, strong reputation with the shareholders and investors. And um, you know, obviously holding out in this case uh, has definitely helped the company. So um, you know, as we wrap up here, Asit, what do you think? Any uh, final takeaways from me? For this industry, I think I see a lot of people trying kind of uh, similar to fast food, similar to McDonald's. You know, sometimes you hear people kind of writing the obituary for soda, how uh, people, consumers being more health conscious are going to turn away from their products that, you know, maybe a few decades down the line, uh, they'll really struggle, won't be around anymore potentially. But to me, you know, their, their brands are just too strong. These are huge companies with a lot of resources, I think, to invest in innovative new products or to invest in uh, you know, that upstart drink down the line or that upstart snack down the line. And overall, uh, you know, some people also talk about the the potential research that they can do into other sweeteners beyond like high fructose corn syrup that can present better uh, better health benefits or you know, non-negative health issues and you know so people can still enjoy their their coke or their pepsi but any other takeaways from you yeah vince i just want to agree with you totally uh these both of these companies are too innovative for investors to look away investors stay put these are two awesome companies with great cash flow they have sales growth potential ahead of them because of the innovation they both are reacting very vigorously to this decline in sodas, and as you mentioned, they are working on lots of different types of sweeteners. It may take years, but at some point, they probably will be able to replicate what a Coke or Pepsi or Mountain Dew tastes like using more natural ingredients. And they are fine-tuning their distribution, working on global markets, working on global volume. So while it may look bleak, at least for Coke and for Pepsi, both of these companies are working on the exact things that you would want them to uh, implement to survive and be the type of strong cash flow returners, uh, great value propositions over the years, and, and total return vehicles. Let's not forget that, as you mentioned, uh, both supply ample dividends. So my takeaway is the exact same, that innovation will carry these companies forward. Now's a great time to stay invested or invest if you're looking at either of these. Absolutely. All right, thanks a lot, I said It was awesome having you on the show again. Thanks so much, Vince. I enjoyed it. So, listeners, that is a wrap for us today, but you can continue the conversation with us via Twitter at MF Industry Focus or send us any questions or comments via email to industryfocus at fool.com. You can also enjoy the other great podcasts from The Motley Fool by checking out fool.com slash podcast. People on the program may own companies discussed in the show, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against stocks mentioned. So don't buy or sell anything based on what you hear during the program. Thanks for listening, and Fool on! <laughs>